In the Psalms, chapter 39, David says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered and that my life is fleeing away. My life is no longer than the width of my hand. An entire lifetime is just a moment to you. Human existence is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth for somebody else to spend. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. Death, I think, helps us to keep life in perspective. Because I really think that there is only one thing certain in this life, and that is one day you and I will leave this world. And on that day when our heart stops and we take our last breath, the biggest question that we have in our minds is, what will that first minute after we die be like? You can be seated. While I think that most of us like the idea of heaven, I think most of us would have to admit that we get kind of an uneasy feeling about it, right? And I think, and I would guess, that we could all get a little more comfortable with the idea if somehow we could get there, if we could just skip the whole death part. You know, if if somehow we could just walk through those pearly gates on our own accord, alive and breathing, right? Sometimes even in the midst of tragic situations comes a little humor, and such was the case in the midst of my mother's fight with cancer. When the doctor called and told the family that they didn't think that she was going to make it through the night. I was at a friend's house, and I got the call around 10 o'clock or so, and so I sped all the way down to the south suburbs in hopes of being able to spend one last moment with my mom before she passed. And so I walk into the hospital, and I see that my brothers and sisters and all my mom's grandkids were all gathered there around her bed, She was unconscious, and her vital signs were growing weaker by the moment. We all said our goodbyes, and we cried, and we waited for her time to come. And I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but I have to believe that it's very surreal and uncomfortable moment for the person who's dying, knowing that everybody else in the room is like waiting for you and looking at you, waiting for you to die. I mean, it just seems like just this awkward kind of thing that goes on in the end. Well, an hour or two passed by, and death had not yet come. 3 a.m., and comes and goes, and we're all looking for empty hospital beds where we can just go crash because we can't hang in there any longer. 
I find a couch in the break room and I curl up and snooze off for a while. 7 a.m. rolls around and the nurse comes in and my mom's still unconscious. She checks her vitals and she says, the nurse says, it's just a matter of minutes now. They come in the break room, they wake me up, and again, the family huddles around my mom. We all say our goodbyes again. We cry again, and again, we wait. 7.20 a.m., to our surprise, my mom wakes up. And she looks around the room at all of us like, what the heck are you people looking at? And the first thing out of her mouth is, I am starving. What's for breakfast? I kid you not, 7.45 a.m., my mom was up and eating breakfast. 45 minutes earlier, she was knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. And now she's down eating steak and eggs like a champ. It was unbelievable. But I have to say that my mom had a very particular idea about how it was that she wanted to go, and it wasn't then. She was not yet ready to go. And I think that it's safe to say that most of us aren't ready to go. But I think that a lot of that has to do with the uncertainty of death. That feeling of the unknown. What lies on the other side? What will it be like? And while we don't have like real extensive information of what it will be like, and I hope that you're going to see in this series that we're just going to stick to what the Bible says about these things and we're not going to make a bunch of stuff up. Um, and and I, think that that, I think that that's beneficial and we're not going to give you our opinion because quite frankly our opinion doesn't matter. It's only what the Bible says. That being said, there are passages in the Bible that we can extrapolate a few things from about what it is going to be like. And I don't think that there was anyone on the face of the earth who knew more about what lies on the other side than Jesus. And while he was alive in the Gospels, he tells the story about two people who died almost at the same time. And while this story, he tells it for a different reason, because I think he's trying to make a point about how we deal with money and how we deal with people in need in this lifetime, I think that it has a lot to tell us about what that first minute after we die will be like. In Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now let me just start out by saying that this is not the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. It is a different Lazarus, but here's the setup. There's a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man was really rich, as indicated in the fact that he was able to afford these uh, purple fabrics and these fine linens that only the wealthiest people of that time were able to afford. And Jesus says the dude was pimped out, and he was looking good, 
He lived in luxury every single day, and so we get a picture of this guy who is loving life and living large, right? By contrast, laying at the entrance of his penthouse was a poor man named Lazarus. He was obviously suffering from some disease because Jesus says he is covered with sores. So being a beggar, having this disease, we can probably assume that this guy is some sort of a social outcast, a nobody, and the rich man wants absolutely nothing to do with him. By the way, I'm not even going to go to the place of the dogs licking his sores thing because I can't handle that kind of thing. So we go on in verse 22. And it says, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So, while all the misery and suffering of Lazarus in his life comes to an end, it seems like almost simultaneously this rich guy dies about the same time. And it's interesting to me that it says that the rich man was buried. But it doesn't mention anything about a burial for Lazarus. I am sure that this rich man had a wonderful funeral with a lot of flowers and family and friends and work associates who all came to pay their respects to this great financial leader. I am sure that he had the upgraded casket package with the gold trim and the inlaid walnut carvings in the casket. I am sure that he was buried in the nicest grave with a big marble headstone. Lazarus, on the other hand, was more likely found dead in the street or some back alley, and his body was thrown into some mass grave with the rest of the poor people who couldn't afford a proper burial. No service, no memorial. The death of Lazarus probably went unnoticed. But we see that somebody was watching over him because it says when Lazarus died, angels came for him. I love that image. This is one of the few places that we catch a glimpse of the first minute after we die mentioned in the scripture. As Lazarus was taking his last breath, heaven deploys angels to go down and get him. They went down and they brought him back to Abraham's side where he would begin living his new life. This passage is one of the few places where we get the idea that there really is maybe an angel of death, only what it's suggesting is that this angel of death is not somebody to be feared, but it's more of like a welcome wagon for heaven kind of a thing. The ancient Jewish tradition of that day held to the belief that the souls of the righteous were taken by angels to heaven at their death, and Jesus here seems to confirm it to be true. Just by the fact that he mentions it specifically in this story allows me to take that literally. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says that angels are sent to help those 
who will inherit salvation. So the first thing we learn about that first minute after we die, for those of us who believe in Jesus and are saved, angels are sent to meet us and to bring us through the pearly gates. By contrast, however, is the rich man who died, and there is no mention of any angel escort. There is no mention of him hanging out with Abraham or going into the heavenly realms. It just says that he died and was buried, and when he did, he ended up in hell, where he was in torment. And he looked up, and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are the one in agony. The other thing that we learn about the first minute after we die is the immediacy of our eternal situation. This refutes the so-called soul sleep theory, which purports that when we die, our soul simply falls asleep, and we are in a sleep-like trance, until Jesus returns. In this story, Jesus makes it it very clear that immediately upon his death, Lazarus was met by angels and carried away to heaven. And immediately upon his death, the rich man found himself in the pits of hell, and he was in agony. I'll never forget an article that I read in the Rolling Stone magazine uh, where they interviewed the band from Nirvana just after Kurt Cobain had taken his own life. And they were, the band was asked the question, what do you think was the first thing that went through Kurt's mind after he left this world? And without hesitation, the drummer said, oh, no. Only he used an expletive there. He said, I think the first thing that went through Kurt's head was, oh, no. What have I done? It just wasn't that bad here. I think the first minute after we die, we know exactly where we're going to end up. So in hell, the rich man looks up and he sees Abraham. And who'd be the one person that he wouldn't want to see standing next to Abraham? Lazarus. And I think he looks up at him and he goes, oh, no. What have I done? This is not where I'm supposed to be. It's interesting, in my own observation of this story, did you notice that the rich man is never given a name in the story? It reminds me of the image that Jesus gives of Judgment Day in Matthew 25 when he sends those away into the eternal fire and he says, I never knew you. Ironic, isn't it, that the rich, prestigious man who 
I'm sure was incredibly well known in his community for his wealth and his power and his business savvy was never ever mentioned by name. He's just referred to as the rich man who landed himself in hell. By contrast, this sick, diseased beggar who nobody knew his name or even cared to know his name is now referred to as Lazarus, which means God has helped. Obviously, while no one knew his name in his time on earth, his name was written in the book of life, and he was now standing next to one of the most famous people in the history of the world. You see, death is a great equalizer. It doesn't matter how successful or rich or powerful or luxurious your life is down here. In the end, we all end up in the same bucket. How ironic is it that this man who had such a great life here, who lived and was probably even buried in style, has now become a beggar himself for the rest of eternity, pleading for just a drop of water from the same man that he walked over and ignored probably every day of his life. Well, in verse 26, it says, and Abraham speaking, and besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. This refutes the whole idea of a purgatory. That not only is a purgatory not mentioned anywhere in the Bible, but Jesus clearly states that nobody can cross over from one place to another. It was actually a pope by the name of Sixtus IV who introduced the whole idea of purgatory. Sixtus saw that there was good money in playing off of people's fear of eternal damnation. And Sixtus came up with a new marketing idea for the church. And Norm, you may want to take note of this. Is that you could actually pay your way out of hell into a place called purgatory, which then you could eventually get yourself into heaven if they paid enough. So purgatory was this kind of holding pen for people who, if they paid enough, could eventually cross over into heaven. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Relatives of the dead quickly filled the coffers of the Vatican with payments intended to lessen the time that their loved ones had to spend in purgatory and hurry them up into the heavenly realms. So Sixtus actually grew his market share by authorizing the residency of over 100,000 souls in purgatory in just 15 years and made some good money while doing it. Just as an aside, this was also the first pope who uh, legalized and profited from the local brothels, if you want to know what kind of man this was. But in the first minute after we die, our fate is sealed, and there's no way out. There's no way to cross from one side to another. And the Bible teaches that death is final. 
Well, the story wraps up in verses 27 through 31. And says, uh, and this is the rich man, he answers and he says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will also not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead were to go to them, then they would believe and repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. And I can just see Jesus kind of telling the story and kind of chuckling to himself at his own private joke, knowing that he's not in the too distant future going to rise from the dead and his brothers still won't believe and many other people won't believe either. What will it take for you to believe? Do you have like this confidence in knowing that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? Because the Bible says that God wants you to have that confidence. He doesn't want you to live in fear. He wants you to know with all certainty where you will go in that first minute after you die. And more than anything else, he wants you greeted by the angels. There's an old saying that I absolutely love, which says, live like you'll die tomorrow, but die knowing that you'll live forever. And I love that because it's an incredible reminder because death, I think, helps us to keep life in perspective. Every Monday morning, I get this reminder. When I do my commute down to my office in downtown Naperville, my path inevitably leads me by a funeral home. And for whatever reason, I don't know what it is, but every Monday morning, there is a funeral there. And as I'm driving by feeling grumpy and sad for myself that I have to go back to work and get back into the grind and do all the things that I don't want to do, as I pass this funeral home, I am reminded of how blessed I really am to have this moment, to have this time. And it reminds me every single Monday about what life is really like. Reflecting on our death sometimes causes us to wake up. Wake up to the fact that every moment, every day has to count. Because we will never, ever get those moments back. When we finally get how short this life is, that it's just a preparation for the rest of eternity, we begin to live differently. Things take on a different meaning. We begin to live more passionately about what we're doing. Suddenly, all of that junk, all the stress that we've been facing, the things that weigh on us, the things that just eat away at us, that seem so insurmountable, all of a sudden, it's just not that big a deal. And I have to tell you that this sermon is way more for me this morning than it is for any of you. If you get something out of it, great. But I'm just up here doing my own little personal therapy because my 
perspective has been off lately. And when I get this reminder, I remember what life's all about. When you live in the awareness of eternity, you spend your time differently. You spend your money differently. You look at ways that you can invest in eternity instead of on that which lasts only while we're here on this earth. The closer you live to God, the smaller everything else becomes. The most important thing for us to remember about the first minute after we die is that in that minute, it's too late. It's too late to change. It's too late to realize that we were wrong. And more than anything else, God makes it very clear in every single passage of the Bible that he wants to be with you. And he wants you to spend the rest of eternity with him. And he does not even want for one person to spend eternity on the wrong side of heaven. We don't do this very often, but I think that if you're not at a place where you feel like you're right with God, if you're not in a place where you're in a relationship with God, if you're not in a place where you have a confidence that you know that when you die, you're going to be in heaven, then I just encourage you during the next few minutes, during the time that the band plays, as communion is passed, that you just spend time getting right with God. To have that conversation, and it's very simple, where just whatever it is that you've done in your life that you know that you can just give it over to God and He'll take it. We have a God who no matter who you are, no matter what you've done in your life, He promises that He will love and accept us just as we are. And as far as the East is from the West, He will remove our sin from us so that we can stand before Him on that day, head held high, knowing that we followed Him. Don't let your pride get in the way. And don't waste one more minute of your life chasing the wrong stuff. Live like you'll die tomorrow. But God wants you to die knowing that you'll live forever.